tonight, but we'll be reading from Judges chapter 7, which is on page 196 of your pew Bibles. So I'll give you a moment to get that out. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, laughing like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that left, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples who had settled in its valley had settled in its valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittar, towards Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Maholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Natali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan.
Thank you, Nick. Well, everyone, pleased to have your Bibles open with you. The Bible is always important, never a dot. But tonight, it's even more important, if that's a thing, because the slides are not going to be working. So you're going to have to just have me and God's Word and the Spirit at work within you, which is always that's enough anyway. But there are no slides. Have God's Word in front of you, and I'm going to pray as we approach what is perhaps a more famous part of God's Word. Um, maybe who, anyone recognize Gideon? We said we're going to preach Gideon. You know what we're talking about. Okay, this is kind of the centerpiece of the story. But we're going to cover chapters 6 through to 8. So we're looking at the whole thing. I'm going to pray as we do. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that throughout all of it we see your character and what it means to follow you as one of your people. We ask by the power of your spirit you're at work with all of us, uh, within the room and across the screen. Shape us into likeness of Jesus. Help us to know what it is to faithfully follow you. May my words be yours. Do your work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, Gideon is a familiar passage to us. But have any of you been to a, like a doctor? Of course you all have, right? Now when you go to a doctor, sometimes they give you a needle for like an immunization to kind of, pre- you know, prevention is better than a cure. Other times they might give you a needle or some kind of checkup to really help you, to like fix something that's going on, heal you in some kind of way, shape you into being a more healthy human. The, the story in Gideon may do one of those two things for you. It may do both. Prevention is better than a cure, but sometimes we need a cure. And so tonight we're going to explore the story of Gideon. Now really, it's not Gideon's story, it's God's story. It's God's story as he works through Gideon. Now, we're expecting an unexpected character as we look in Judges. That's kind of the pattern which we've, uh, that Judges has set itself. And that's the nature here. But Gideon is incredibly complex. He's a complex character. You know that person, maybe it's yourself, and there's like layers on layers on layers. And some of them are contradicting to one another. Some of them are, are very complex. This is Gideon. He is no one-dimensional hero. And so we start the story and we end the story in the same kind of way. Israel, evil in the eyes of the Lord, Israel saved, given rest. But we are left with all sorts of questions. All sorts of questions about the character of Gideon and of ourselves. Because is Gideon a hero or is he a villain? Is he doubtful or is he faithful? Where really is Gideon getting his strength from? Whose agenda is he really on about? Whose kingdom is he fighting for? And those kind of questions are then asked of us. Really, we're looking at what does it look like for us to faithfully live out God's calling on our life? That was Gideon's position, and that is our position too. So let me paint uh, the scene. We'll set the scene, and then we'll dive in. So we're on to our fourth judge. If you've been trekking with us, this is our fourth sermon, and by coincidence, our fourth judge Israel are kind of going down this spiral downwards, same again and again. We're going to cover chapters uh, 6 to 8, but it's really three scenes. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 as it works out, and there's this continual development that happens as we, we go along. It's wild, it's a bit unexpected, but let's have a go. So we're in chapter 6. Now, the beginning of chapter 6, we're confronted with Israel, but we meet an oppressor 
and a mighty, weak warrior. See, before Gideon, we're met with Midian. We're confronted with the plight of Israel. Just to remind us again, Israel have not changed. Again and again, they're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord because they continue to follow after idols, continue to seek meaning and value security in something other than God. And now they're experiencing the consequences again for that. Midian are super oppressive, right? They live in an agricultural place. And so Midian are like locusts, like raiders that come, steal all their food, all their produce, all their resources. So you imagine everything's taken away from you. Someone goes into your house, takes all your food, and then you've got to go again. You're fearful, right? You're trying to protect what you've got. You're afraid of these Midianites. Naturally, you cry out for help. Israel, cry out for help. But God does something unusual. God doesn't immediately give them the help that they're asking for in a saviour. He sends a prophet. Now, we met Deborah last week, who was a prophet, but Deborah raised up a judge. This time, God sends a prophet, and he just gives a sermon. And this is his sermon. This is, what the, this is verse 8. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. The Exodus story. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you. I gave you the land. I'm packing the story of Joshua and Judges. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in, the land, in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. What do you think God's doing there? What God is doing is he's moving them from regret to repentance. That's intention at least. Moving them from regret to repentance repentance because Israel they're crying out again save me save me save me but they're in the same position again they're just regretting the pain and God is trying to move them to repentance they're going man bad decision again save me but regret is not the same as repentance and maybe you're finding yourself in that position wanting the pain of whatever the sin you've done the consequence of that sin to go away crying out God save me again God wants to move us from regret to repentance. And if you're in that position now, can I encourage you? The grace of the Lord Jesus is more than enough. Come to him. He's calling us to move from regret to repentance. Now, do we see Israel do that in the story? No. Silence. We don't see a movement from regret to repentance. What do, we do? what do we see? We see God's going to raise up a judge. God's going to respond in grace. And we see throughout the Bible that God responds in grace all the time. Here we see that God saves before they repent. God saves us before we repent. That's grace all over. You know, Romans 8, 5, 8, For Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies. This is a classic example of that again. But here we get God, he raises up a judge. He's raising up Gideon, the one who we all like, and he's, he, there's many good things about his character. We're familiar with him. And we get his commissioning. Now, his commissioning may be familiar to you. We read about it from 11 through to the end of verse 32. And it's a two-part commissioning. The first part, he's confronted with an angel. So if you have a look, verse 11 
The picture that we find Gideon that we're introduced to is he's fearful, right? Remember the Midianites, they're oppressive, they're, they're, they're all after the Israelites taking their food. So Gideon is scared. He's fearful, kind of trying to get a little bit of food for himself. And an angel of the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, to Gideon. His response, pardon me, my Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why does this all happen to us? What were all the wonders that our ancestors told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. He's given us into the hands of Midian. Gideon's a bit depressed. He's a little, maybe a little bit angry. He's certainly dismissive. Where is this God? Where is this God you speak of, angel? I don't see him. I just see oppression. But the angel says to him, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? I'm going to send you, Gideon. What does Gideon say? Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Gideon? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest in my family. Gideon is the low of the low. Like God is scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But God is saying, Gideon, I'm going to use you. You think you're useless? No. You're fearful and weak, but I'm going to give you strength. I will use you as my tool to deliver. That's a pretty encouraging thought for Gideon and for us. But the angel, and so the angel responds uh, after Gideon's kind of, oh, man, I'm too weak, but I will be with you. I will go with you. The victory will be yours. But Gideon is still not convinced. Again and again, has this angel talking to him, but he's unconvinced. He's like, give me a sign. I need something to prove that this is really what's going to happen. So when you read on from verses 17 onwards through to 24, there's this scene where the angel confirms that he is from God. They make a sacrifice. The angel just touches it with his stuff, bursts into flames. Gideon's fearful but assured. Okay, God is with me. And then we get the second commissioning. We don't go straight to delivering Israel. God sends him on another mission first. And he sends him to bring revival. Small revival. God says to him in verses 25 through to 26, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height using the wood from the Asherah pole and put a burnt uh, offering on it. The second commissioning is cut down the idols, particularly cut down your father's idols. It's get rid of idols but in your own backyard. Bring revival there first. So Gideon does, but he's a scared man, right? He's fearful, doubtful. So he doesn't do it in the day. He's like, he gets his buddies, gets his servants, and he does it at night time. Kind of like, oh, I hope no one knows that I cut this thing down. Goes and does it. Now, people do know it's him, and they come after him. They come after his dad. Hey, bring out your son. We want to kill him. Now, the father kind of gets some kind of secondhand courage, it seems, and he says, no, 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 hold on. If Baal is really God, let him deal with Gideon. You don't kill him. And so he's given this name Jeroboam, uh, which means let Baal contend with him. Now this is a little nickname for Gideon, but he now symbolizes the battle that Israel are in. Gideon is now symbolizing that there's a battle between will they follow God or will they follow Baal? Who's going to win, Yahweh or Baal? Let Baal contend with Gideon. What 
what do we learn from this story? We can see that God uses the weak. You may be here thinking that you are weak, thinking that you are nobody, thinking that you have no strength. Surely God cannot use you. That's what Gideon was thinking. But God chose to use him. He chose to use him even when he thought he had no strength. The commission of Gideon shows that God, he can use anybody that he wants, anyone that he chooses. He uses the weak to shame the strong, as we read in 1 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago. God will use the weak, even us. But then we continue on in the narrative. We're expecting a battle? Let's go. Get in the battle. But we're sidetracked again. Gideon, he wants another confirmation. He has another test. And this is where we get the famous fleece test. If you've heard of that, he puts out the fleece from verses uh, 33 through to the end of chapter 4. Basically, what happens is that Gideon is like, God, I really need to know you there. I need some assurance. I've got faith, but I'm like, help me with my unbelief. It's kind of what Gideon is doing here. Now, we're not meant to follow it, but what Gideon does is he puts out a fleece, a bit of wool, and says, okay, God, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. God, in graciousness, does it. Then Gideon's like, okay, I'm still not sure. God, please be okay with me. Can you do it again, but the other way around? Make the floor wet and the fleece dry. God, in his graciousness, does it. And that's just a beautiful image of God, isn't it? God sees him in his need and gives him the signs to which his faith can rest on. This is not an invitation for us to follow. Don't go around doing fleece tests. But God gives us the signs that we need for us to firmly put our faith on. And that's what he's done for Gideon. And so with that, now we move into the second scene. The scene that Nick had read for us. Chapter 7. So we've looked at Israel is oppressed. God speaks to them and he raises up a weak but a mighty warrior and then gives him the faith that he needs. So we embark on chapter 7, the scene of the battle. And we had it read before, so we'll charge on through it. Now Gideon gets his warriors together, and he's got about 32,000 of them. And God decides that is too many. That is too much for Israel. Now that seems odd, because we've read in chapter 6, well, you haven't, well, you maybe did, but uh, Midian is a huge army, countless in a sense, a massive army. 32,000 is pretty puny. But what does God say in verse 4? These men the Israelites, are still are too many. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My strength has saved me. What's going on here is if they go in with the 32,000 men, as small as it is, if God doesn't thin them out, Israel will go, it was my strength. It was me, not God, uh, who did it. So God goes about reducing them. He reduces their strength. Because these guys have idol worship going on, right? Consistently falling after idols. Why? Because they don't depend on God. They don't trust God. So now God's going to make them experience and see, you need to depend on me and I will prove faithful. This is a lesson of trust. It's a lesson of dependence on God. So God, he reduces the army twice. The first time, he's like, whoever's scared, go home. Scared ones, maybe Gideon wanted to go with them. God said, not you, mate. The rest of them, go home. Left with 10,000. Second, second time, really weird test. Gideon, take them down to the water. Those that kneel down and drink compared to the ones that scoop it up and lap it up like dogs. The ones that lap it up like dogs, keep them. The rest of them sent home. Nothing special going on there. That's just God's choice of some weird way to pick his people that he's going to use. 300. 
300. That's a reduction of 99%. All right? And we're not talking about 300 Spartans. We're talking about farmer boys. Some of them are warriors. But like Israelites who are not the most hardy kind of troops. This is terrible military advice. But this is God's whole purpose of saying to the Israelites, it will be my strength, not yours. My strength is going to win this battle. I'm just going to do it through you. You need to experience it, not just to think it. And so then we get the night before the battle. Now you imagine yourself in Gideon's position. Given plenty of assurance, three times now, but the night before the battle, up on a hill, looking down on an uncountable army. He is scared. Insert whatever you want to describe scared in there. He is petrified. But he doesn't ask for another sign this time. He doesn't ask, God, are you with me? It's as though he has faith. But what happens? God sees him. God sees him in his fear. God sees him in his absolute terror. And we read that God comes to him uh, from verse 9. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up. Go down against the camp because I'm going to give them into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Like, isn't that beautiful? God, he comes to him and he's like, I know you're scared. I'll show you. I'll give you the confidence and take a mate with you. Go down, have a look. He goes down there. He looks, finds them thick as locusts, countless camels like sand on a seashore. And Gideon arrives and he's confronted with his dream. Canaanites having a dream. And the guy gives uh, his dream. He's like, I had a dream. It was saying a round barley loaf, uh, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midian camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent blew over and collapsed. His friend turned, oh, surely that must be the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, this little tumbling bread. God has given Midian and the whole camp into his hands. I love the kind of humbling nature of this dream. Right? God has clearly given the Midianites this dream. He's like, Gideon, you're just a little tumbling biscuit bread that's going to go and destroy the Midianite army. But in that, yes, I will deliver them through you. It's humbling, but it's assuring. So Gideon, he worships the Lord. He gets up. He's convicted. He's going. Now we get the plan. Uh, we, we get what he's going to do. Uh, he rallies his troops, and he gives them the strangest military weapons ever. Gives them a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. That's it, it seems. And he tells them, follow my lead and shout out when we attack for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, the plan is basically to scare them, to say, boo, and then that's it. That's his plan, Right? Now, he does it at a particular time, though. It said when the guard had just changed. So at that time, big armies, they would have probably been broken up into thirds. One third of the army has been up for a third of the night, watching, just gone to sleep. You know, when it's nighttime, you're tired, you fall on the hay, exhausted. That's a third of the army. The other third of the army are just waking up out of nowhere to then begin their watch in the middle of the night. I've been woken up a bunch of times with my little boy Ezra. I am in no state to do any kind of fighting, no, in no state to do any kind of thinking, right? That's a whole third of the army. 
The other third of the army are like, don't wake me up, I'm sleeping. One third going to sleep, one third just waking up, and one third dead asleep. And at that point, Gideon says, for the Lord and for Gideon. Crash, bang, they smash the jars, they bring out the torches, they blow the trumpets. To, to these delirious Midianites, it looks like there's thousands and thousands of Israelites descending upon them, going to destroy them. And what happens? God orchestrates it such that they kill each other. We read 120,000 of the 130,000 that were there turn on each other. Gideon and the Israelites, the 300, watch. Just watching. It's not a delightful scene, but victory is what we're, we're witnessing here. We can clearly see that the Lord is the victor. Now we kind of ask, well, what is Gideon doing with the Lord and for Gideon? bit of a strange detour that comes up twice. Perhaps twisting a little bit here towards Gideon's glory. But, we're, as, but we as readers are left under no doubt that God has brought this victory through Gideon. He's used him and the troops. God has delighted to use his people to do it. And there's a complete victory through a very, very weak army. And so what we see there is God has turned their weakness into great strength. And it can be the same for us. God can use and turn our weaknesses into strength. On other occasions, God may need to weaken us. God, he weakened the Israelite army. And the point of that was so they can rely on him. So for us, perhaps he may weaken us or choose something in our, in our life that is weakening us. So we do rely on him. So we give him the glory. And you think about for a, for a moment, if the goal is dependence, trust, reliance on God, Weakness is an advantage. If the goal is dependence, weakness is an advantage. Because if you're weak, you know, man, I've got to go to God. You're going to trust Him. You're going to be sure that He is going to provide the victory. So friends, don't be shy about your weaknesses. By the work of the Holy Spirit, because we're in this side of salvation history, this side of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come. God can use us at our absolute weakest. And he can use those weaknesses to shape us and mold us as he's doing to the Israelites here. Maybe in this moment, there's something in your life that is weakening you. Maybe it's God, maybe God using the circumstances to shape you, to mold you, to help ensure that you do trust in the Lord. And so that whatever successes, perhaps even whatever failures come your way, whatever experiences of blessing that come before you, that you are a part of, that you will know God will get the glory. You will be blessed, but you'll know it will be his strength, not yours. God can certainly use our weaknesses for his good purposes and for our good. And then we hit the third chapter, the third scene, chapter 8. Now we should read straight from verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and it did not raise its head again, during Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. But we don't get that. We got 27 other verses before. And what we see about Gideon is that he has had incredible success, hasn't he? He's been taken from a fearful man to a very successful one. But at what cost? At what cost? What kind of man is Gideon really? What kind of person is he? Now, we firstly see that Gideon is an astute diplomat. He's a very astute diplomat. In verses 1 through to 
three, after the battle, the Ephraimites, who are like the biggest, most powerful tribe in Israel, like, Gideon, we're hating on you, mate. You didn't invite us to the victory. We wanted to be part of it, is basically what they're saying. They arc up at him and challenge him. But Gideon is smart. He's an astute diplomat. He's like a wise and a crafty politician. And he's like, what have I compared, compared? What have I accomplished compared to you? Basically, you killed the leaders, I just killed the army. Man, you've done better than me. And their resentment subsided. But as Gideon talks to them, he's being very cunning. He's being very crafty. Because he has another agenda on his mind. He has something more that he's after. And that's what we begin to see. The next kind of section, verse 4 through to 21, is that Gideon is an avenging, a ruthless general. He's a ruthless general. Because Gideon continues to pursue the kings of Midian. Heaps, like, it seems as though all the Midianites are destroyed but the kings. They're not captured, they're not killed. So Gideon gets his exhausted 300 and marches after them in pursuit, chasing them. Now he reaches the end of kind of Israelite territory, which is these two places that we see written, Sakoff and Pinion. And he says to both of them, give me food. I'm chasing the Midianite kings. Give me food for my troops. They're exhausted. Why? I'm still pursuing Zebah and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. Now Sukkoth and Peniel, they both say, do you already have the hands of Zebra and Zalmunna in your possession? Another way of saying in ancient terms, you've won the victory. You've got them all. What are you doing? We're not going to give you any bread. Like, mate, you've won. What are you doing? We're not going to help you in this endeavor. See, the mission of God for Israel at the beginning was to drive out the Canaanites. They're driven out. The mission for Gideon at the beginning here was to destroy the Canaanites who were oppressing Israel. They are destroyed. But Gideon wants more. He wants the kings. And then more than that, we see a very ruthless we see a vengeful response to his own Israelites because when they say to him, mate, we're not going to give you food, he says, just for that, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. To the other town, I will tear down this tower. He is ruthless. He will avenge. As a leader, he's saying, you cross me, you pay. You question my agenda, I'll put you in your place. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That's a scary thought. We've almost forgotten the very weak, fearful Gideon, haven't we? I suspect that Gideon has forgotten too. As we read on, we see that he captures the kings, Zeba and Zamuna, but he doesn't kill them. He parades them around, takes them with him, goes back to these towns, carries out his retribution to the Israelites, and then gets kings, Zeba and Zamuna, before him and he confronts them and he says to them in verse 18 what kind of men did you kill and they say kind of like you know talking him about oh, men like you men like you Gideon each one with the bearing of a prince and Gideon replied those are my brothers the sons of my mother who did the kings kill they killed Gideon's family this is a revenge mission for Gideon this is really his agenda. 
He commands his son to do it, to kill the kings. He doesn't do it. He's too scared. He's just a boy. So the kings taunt him. Verse 19, as is the man, so is his strength. Gideon, as is the man, so is, their, so is your strength. Show us who you really are, Gideon. Bring out your true character. So Gideon kills them. See, this is Gideon's agenda. He wanted revenge. This was not God's agenda. Now, if you th- flick through verses 21 through to, from verses 5 through to 21, the names of Zeba and Zalmunna are mentioned nine times. That's why I kept mentioning their names. Nine times they're mentioned. Do you know how many times God is mentioned? Now, we went through it quickly, so I don't expect you to know. Zero. Not once. Not once is God mentioned. As we look through the whole chapter, God is only mentioned once by Gideon himself. The narrator lets God kind of fade out of the story. God makes no action anymore. God is not directing Gideon here. Now you put that in complete contrast to chapter 6 and 7. God in giving him confidence, orchestrating everything that is going on. We're now in stark contrast. God everywhere throughout 6 and 7, nothing in chapter 8. This is a very concerning, ominous sign because God now has faded into the background. Fallen over, he had. Absent. We read on. We begin to ask ourselves, who is the saving ruler here, really? Or who thinks they are? And verse 22 to 28 paints the picture. The Israelites certainly think Gideon is. That's who they think it is. Verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon, you are our saviour. No mention of God here. This is exactly what God didn't want to happen. He wanted dependent on me, people. Israelites, be dependent on me. Don't be dependent on yourselves or Gideon. But no. They're saying, Gideon, you will be our saviour. Now his response is telling. Verse 23. He says, no, 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 no. I will not rule over you. I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The perfect, correct, illogical response, right? Gideon nailed it. You read on. But I do have one request. That you give me an earring earring from a share of the plunder. See, they had lots of plunder left over. Give me a share of it, all of you. Yes, God, you are the king. Amen. But I'm going to act like the king. Because what do we read in, in Deuteronomy 17 with Moses? Moses warned them, you get a king, what are they going to do? They're going to take your money and they're going to have many wives. When you read the rest of the Gideon story, what did he have? Many wives. Gideon is saying to them, God is the king, but in his actions he is acting the king. And then with that gold he makes an idol. He makes a, an image of an ephod. Uh, and put it in his town. The author makes a particular point that his town. Now, the ephod in uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is an image that the, um, the priests wore as part of their clothing. And so it was symbolic of God's presence, right? Because that's what the priests did. They went into God's presence. And it was also something used to discern God's will. So with Gideon making an ephod, 
He is saying, okay, in my town, this is where God's presence is, and I am the one you want to know God's will with. I will discern God's will. And we don't get that exactly, but that's kind of the image that the ephod paints. This is pride. This is hubris. This is about his kingdom. And we are left with a really uncomfortable question reality here. Who really is the saving king? Who really is this kingdom all about? Is it God or is it Gideon? Now the kings said to Gideon back in verse 19, as is the man, so is his strength. As is the man, so is his strength. He can brought him out to women. As is the woman, so is her strength. These verses ask us about our character. They ask us, Christian, who is really driving you? Who really is the king? Now, the narrator makes no comment as to whether or not Gideon knew what was going on really. Was he aware of what was happening? Did he know that he was kind of consumed with his own pride, his own strength, his own agenda, his own kingdom? In reality, he probably wasn't. And I fear that for myself. I fear that for myself, that I can be so blind to the things that I go about. Speaking a good game, but acting another way. I've certainly seen it in others. Maybe as I was going through that Gideon story, you were thinking of others. But I also fear it for us. For all of us. And it makes us ask the same uncomfortable questions. Whose strength? In whose strength do we go in? Whose strength are we ultimately dependent on? We are all weak in some way, shape, or form. We all think that we can do it on our own. But really, God is the one who provides our strength. In whose strength do we go in? What about whose agenda? What agenda ultimately drives us? Perhaps maybe we have multiple agendas. There was a lot going on for Gideon. Like in ministry, if people don't agree with you or don't do what you want, you attack them. Maybe just within. Now, there's nothing wrong with people giving direction. But relationships are cut off or ministry is put to the side for someone else's agenda, their own gain, their own kind of ideas. Personal pride and agenda comes to the surface. Whose agenda are we really pursuing? And then whose kingdom? Are we about building God's kingdom or are we about building our kingdom? Are we about building the Nali Baptist Church kingdom or God's kingdom? The Gideon story is scary, especially for the Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, then we should be on about God's kingdom, right? But like Gideon, we could be doing all the right things, maybe even seeing fruitfulness, seeing, seeing great things happen. But underneath it is about us. Maybe not completely, but there's elements of that there. Whose kingdom are we really about building? Can I suggest we need to watch out for the signs? Your prayer life, is, is there a lack of prayer life? If you're not praying, it's a classic sign that you're dependent on yourself and not on God. Do you get irritated or angry at others when things don't go your way, go against you, people don't agree with you? Perhaps you find yourself consistently yearning for others to give you praise, to give you attention, to give you, that was a great job, drawing attention to yourself and not recognizing God's hand. In any way, we act in such a way that is about us and not about God. 
And of course, that is a big call. We need to prayerfully consider how we go about that in our own life. But the person who did do all these things rightly was Jesus, right? He is the one this passage clearly points to, but he's also the one who we've been shaped to being in the likeness of. Because Jesus was the one who sought his strength from God. So we are called to be people who seek our strength from God, to be people whose agenda is God's alone, to be people who are concerned and working towards the kingdom of God. Jesus was the one who through weakness brought about the most unexpected and glorious victory on the cross and then rising again. He embodied that God uses the weak. He embodied that faith and complete trust in God even when all is against him, even when it seemed like it was a terrible idea. He put his trust in God. He trusted God and his word and obeyed. We consistently see that Jesus was about God's strength, God's agenda, and about God's kingdom. Brothers, it's that Jesus, he comes to bring us life and life to the full. He brings forgiveness, he brings life. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He's in the business of shaping you into his likeness, to live out all these things as he does. The work of the Spirit and his grace will do that. And if you're not a Christian, the Bible is inviting you, inviting you with a warm invitation to come be part of this family. Be forgiven, find life, and find the blessing that God will bring, certainly for eternity and in part now. That's a challenging call, but I hope one that charges us towards Jesus and his kingdom as we look at the passage of Gideon. Let me pray that we are that kind of people. Our Father, we need you. In many ways, uh, we see your wonderful character through the pages of Scripture. We see that you're faithful even when we are not. We see that you save us before we repent. We see that you use us in weakness. Uh, You call us and you delight us to be part of your kingdom, to be part of your work, to be part of your agenda and to have your strength. But we we struggle with that, God. At times, we are humble. At times, we are not. Please help us by the power of your Spirit, by your grace, to be changed into the likeness of Jesus, to live for your kingdom, uh, for his glory. We pray that you bring us blessing as a result. We ask that your name will be lifted up. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.